0: There we go. Uh, well, hello. I uh, have loved our conversation so far. And I'm, what I'm really hoping to do in this talk is um, just basically give a reading of Augustine that kind of shows how Augustine is uh, using Greco Roman philosophical categories, concepts. What's he doing? Kind of how is he integrating that into his theological project? It's My goal is primarily to be descriptive uh, and a little bit of analysis. But then what I want everyone to be kind of clued into is as you're kind of listening to this or maybe you've already read the paper, um, when we get to our discussion time, you, you, know, you can ask me questions. But I would love it if we could discuss as a group uh, kind of the implications of Augustine's method. So maybe... Uh, even looking to see if does he provide a method does he have a uniform method some people claim he's just he just does a grab bag he just takes what he likes and discards the rest or is he actually being methodical in what he's doing is it something that we could imitate is it something we need to reject all of those sorts of questions I think among the group would be really um, valuable uh, a lot of y'all have read Plato have read Augustine are more experts on this than me so I want to do a little bit of a shared knowledge in the group, instead of me being the guru that answers your questions or whatever. Um, No guru. So, um, how about, I wondered if I could just pray for us real quick. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, we confess that you are one, and that you are truth, and because of that, all the many truths that we discern in this life um, are united in you. Lord, we ask that you would be with us, uh, that you would reveal yourself to us um, in the the treasures of men, and that uh, it would redound to your glory. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. So, um, as everyone, I think, is pretty aware, uh, there are two or three major, historically major schools of thought in regards to how Christian theology can engage with or interact with pagan philosophy. So I don't think I need to really summarize that, but you've got the, um, on the one side, you've got kind of the Justin Martyr uh, side of things where, you know, let's take the good, let's uh, throw out the bad, use it for apologetics, use it to build theological systems, Uh, You've got the extreme end, uh, which we've been talking about, kind of the Arianism. Let's be so philosophical we end up being heretical. Uh, And then, of course, you've got the end, which is very suspicious of using philosophy because one of the fears is that uh, philosophy then gets to ask the questions. And philosophy gets to provide the categories. And then theology now is subservient to, this is the idea, subservient to the... uh, a project that was not initially intended to lead to the knowledge and love of God, so why, why would we use philosophy as the, um, the organizing principle of theology is kind of the suspicion of philosophy on the other end. and then you have Augustine, and he I think he really wrestles with this throughout his entire life, uh, how, how to engage with uh, the philosophy that he was steeped in as he was growing up. Um, and I'm not even sure he was always aware of how he was using Platonism uh, in what he was writing. I'm not even sure he was fully aware of when he, was, um, when he was just doing, say, biblical theology and when he was kind of pulling from the resources that he had that had shaped his thinking for a couple decades. I mean, who could be fully aware of that sort of thing? Um, so what I kind of want to do is I wanted to analyze um, Confessions... And see how is he using um, Greek philosophy, particularly Platonism, Neoplatonism, a little bit of Stoicism. Um, how is he making use of it? How, how does that kind of inform the questions he asks, the categories, the interpretive paradigms that he uses? Um, how does that kind of jive with his stated, um, his, his stated theory of philosophy and its interaction with theology? Um, the reason why I picked Confessions instead of City of God, even though City of God, I love City of God, and it's brilliant, and he's very direct in the way that he engages with almost all of Greco-Roman philosophy in the City of God. Um, Confessions is interesting because it's not just um, kind of a theological treatise, but it's also, it's a biography, it's literature, it's, it shows how uh, philosophy engages with um, the existential questions um, it very much gives you kind of a full-bodied, three-dimensional picture of how philosophy shaped who Augustine was as a holistic person um, and not just you know, his beliefs and you know his doctrine of God here coheres with this part of Platonism. It's not just like that. It's his whole way of being. So I wanted to kind of explore how Confessions gives us a more three-dimensional uh, look at how Augustine uses Greek philosophy. Um, so that's kind of the purpose here. Um, real briefly, uh, and again, all this is you know in the paper, so I'm not going to read tons of quotes and things like that. You can go back and read the paper, but you know, obviously, the famous quote of Augustine in on Christian doctrine is what we had been talking about this morning, which is the um, plundering the Egyptians in order to beautify the tabernacle. That's um, kind of Augustine's stated view of what we can do with uh, the best of Greek philosophy. Uh, but of course, he also wrote uh, against the academicians, and he's against sophistry, and he's against atomism, and he's against materialism, and he's against most of Stoicism, and he's, he's against a lot of things he finds in Plato. Uh, he actually calls um, uh, even a lot of Platonic philosophy a form of idolatry. So um, he's engaging in the city of God in Book 8 uh, with Colossians 2, 8-9, through nine, which we also brought up this morning. Um, about the idea of uh, don't be caught up in vain philosophy and the elemental principles of this world, but um, instead be um, shaped by Christ. And he says that um, most philosophers are vain cheats who live according to human tradition and not according to Christ, and that all pagan philosophy, not only can it fall into vain deceit, but it's a form of idolatry condemned by Paul in Romans 1. And what he does here is he clarifies that there's, there's on the one hand, you can say true things about God, but not be a lover of God. And so a lot of what you find even in the Platonists is truth about a, a God that they don't actually love in that relational knowledge. And he, he even pulls from an image in Plato and in Aristotle of that idea of you can see the guy across the street, but you don't necessarily you know he's a guy and you might be able to say true things about that guy but you don't actually know that person you don't know his name you don't have a relationship with him Um, but you're still saying true things about that guy across the street Um, and that's kind of how he frames what um, the Platonists are doing in a lot of ways Um, so If I could summarize kind of his um, approach, his stated approach to um, Platonic philosophy, he says a lot of Platonic philosophy aligns with Christian theology, but three things need to be maintained. One, most philosophy outside of Platonism, to a lesser extent Stoicism, is primarily dross rather than salvageable gold. He just kind of says that. Two, even though Platonism is full of wise insights, because the Platonists lack personal knowledge of God and are filled with arrogance, and we're going to circle back around to the idea of arrogance later, they can never reach a full knowledge of the truth. They don't have personal knowledge, and they also have vain conceit. And then three, Platonism is commendable insofar as it coheres with Christian theology. Uh, Those are three things that he states just clearly in City of God. Um, so that 's kind of his articulated perspective on uh, greco Roman theology or philosophy and how it coheres with Christian theology, uh, but I wanted to explore kind of how this works out in praxis with confessions, um, and we could even discuss whether or not we think what he 's doing in confessions is consistent with what he states in city of God. That could be a really interesting conversation i 'm not quite sure, so curious what you think. Um, But let's just go kind of into his biography real quick. So, Augustine traces the history of his conversion, um, and he recounts how the three parts of his soul each needed to be transformed. His appetites, his passions, and his mind. Now, if you have read any Plato, this should start to ring a little bit of a bell, and we're going to get into the tripartite soul in a little bit. Um, But his intellectual conversion to Orthodox Christianity is the final resting place of his intellectual journey through Greco-Roman philosophy. From Cicero to Manichaeism to Neoplatonism and then finally to Orthodox Christianity. That's his intellectual journey. Um, While he notes that his conversion was not simply intellectual in nature, his intellectual journey informed the movement of his appetites and his passions toward the right way. For as long as his mind was darkened by the truth, uh, for darken to the truth. He could not find freedom from his incontinence and his pride. And we're going to kind of explore those three areas um, in greater detail. So his intellectual journey begins with Cicero, who you know, was a great Stoic philosopher. Uh, he read Hortensius, and uh, what, what Hortensius gave him, this is really interesting, he says that before he read Hortensius, he uh, was filled with pride, ambition, and vanity that drew him toward rhetorical prestige. Okay, So you could see that maybe he was um, existentially following the path of the sophists a little bit. He wants rhetorical prestige, he wants uh, honor and glory, and he doesn't necessarily care about what's true. And then he reads Cicero, and he says uh, that, that Cicero's stoic vision, quote, fundamentally changed the direction of my mind. It changed the way he prayed to God. It instilled in him fresh purpose in life, such that he discarded his vain ambition and longed after immortal wisdom. It was as if he was the prodigal son who had left his uh, father to dabble in the folly of the world. And by reading Cicero, he had, quote, begun that journey upwards by which I was to return to God. By commending the, him the merits of philosophy, which is the love of wisdom, what Cicero did was it led Augustine to love, seek, win, hold, and embrace not this or that philosophical school, but wisdom itself, wherever he could find it. So if you are just to kind of summarize, Cicero does, what Cicero does is it ignites in him a love of wisdom, true wisdom. And at that point, he's ready to discard any certain school uh, of thought or discard any certain uh, ambitions to personal glory so that he can grab onto the truth. Um, But of course, at the same time, uh, the wisdom that Cicero offers him is not the wisdom that he ultimately needs. So on the one hand, Cicero uh, rightly sets him on the path to uh, capital T truth, uh, but doesn't actually help him along the way. Uh, because he doesn't actually point him to Christ, who is the truth. Um, and you can start to see that um, this becomes a pattern. Uh, he says that uh, the only thing I found lacking was that the name of Christ was not there. And because of this, it could not wholly lead me to the knowledge of God. Um, unfortunately, Cicero also became a stumbling block, because Cicero was so... Um, his. Uh, Rhetoric and his philosophical sophistication was so pleasing to Augustine that he cracked open the Bible after he read Cicero and he hated scripture because it wasn't as beautiful as Cicero was. Um, And so at the same time, he said, um, when he turned to read the scriptures to find truth, he was repulsed by the simplicity and humility of scripture, which seemed, quote, unworthy to be compared with the majesty of Cicero. So because he was filled with conceit, with the desire for um, glorious language and uh, philosophical sophistication, he actually, he said his mind was unable to penetrate into the depths of scripture because he did not have the mind of a child. And this becomes one of the main themes uh, throughout his conversion story, is that he, as When he's reading all of these great philosophers, sometimes he encounters the truth there, but, he, but the philosophers couldn't give him the humility he needed to actually receive the truth. And one of the things that actually led him to Christianity was the intellectual humility of Ambrose and the church in Milan that he became a part of. Because they were willing to read scripture in faith, and he saw a childlike humility in them that he didn't see in any of the other philosophers. And he started to see this dissonance there. And so uh, the intellectual humility of these Christians was one of the means that actually led him to get to a place um, in it existentially to where he could actually receive the truth of Christianity later on, which is really interesting. Okay, from uh, Cicero, he ended up joining the Manichees. Um, I'm going to skip a lot of this. Um, but one interesting takeaway here is he says that um, at, he was kind of on uh, one foot in the Manichees, one foot in the Ciceronians, um, and he said that each offered him a different form of intellectual falsehood. Okay, so this is, this is interesting. Um, he said that the philosophy of Cicero led him into pride, and the philosophy of the Manichees led him into error. And he said both are a kind of philosophical or intellectual falsehood. Um, So with pride, you're not able to receive the truth, even if the truth is in front of you. And then, of course, with error, it's not giving you the truth. And so actually both of those needed to be overcome, error and pride. Um, You see the error is overcome by the Platonists, pride is overcome by um, the humility of the church. Um, so he's in he's in for a while. What you know, you can read this. Um, but the the important part about the Manichaean uh, part of his biography is that he became a materialist through Manichaeanism. and so um, they basically posited that um, even the divine is uh, instantiated in space, in time, and has these like spirit particles. Uh, from which we get our souls. Our souls are like particles of the divine that we've kind of taken. And what it did was it shaped him into a person who was unable to comprehend that God could be incorporeal, uh, that there there could actually be such a thing as a spiritual substance, um, that uh, God was uh, outside of space and time. He couldn't grasp those concepts. So... As he's moving away from Manichaeanism, he meets Ambrose. And uh, Ambrose starts to um, catechize him. And he's being introduced to these Christian doctrines that uh, God is a spiritual substance. Um, that uh, God is outside of time and space. And it makes no sense to him. He doesn't have the philosophical or intellectual categories to actually be able to understand and grasp those fundamental doctrines of God because of how he's been shaped by Manichaeanism. And this is actually one of the main ways that Platonism prepares him to receive the Christian faith. He reads the Platonists and he finally gets an account of how something could be a spiritual substance. Uh, He reads the Platonists and gets a whole new perspective on space and on time, uh, on um, the oneness of God. Um, he even gets a um, yeah. He he gets um, a view of the logos as well uh, from Plotinus, um, and that uh, all substances are good, and that evil is not a substance. This is another thing that he really struggled with: was um, that the Manichaeans say evil is a substance, and that substances are fundamentally bad. Um, but of course, in Christianity. evil is not a substance and uh, substances are fundamentally good because God created them. Again, he couldn't grasp this. He was taught it, but he couldn't grasp it. And then he reads the Platonists and they give him those categories. So um, if we were to kind of summarize, two things that the Platonists really gave him was um, the two things that he was struggling with the most uh, as he was working his way toward Christ. So one was simply... uh, he he was starting to um, struggle with whether or not he could actually trust any philosophical system. So the Manichaees, uh, as he spent more time, he realized that they were kind of full of hot air. They couldn't answer his questions. They were self-contradictory, um, and he describes it as he went to a bad doctor, and the bad doctor made him more sick. He needed to go to another doctor, but now he didn't trust any doctor. So he he goes to Ambrose, and Ambrose is starting to try to teach him these other things, and he says that part of the reason why he couldn't receive it was he couldn't trust another doctor. He couldn't trust the veracity of a new teaching. And then secondarily, he didn't have the conceptual framework to understand it. The Platonists gave him both. So the Platonist gave him the intellectual capacity to be able to find something that he actually could trust enough to say that's true. right? It moved him from skepticism toward um, actually a trust in some sort of objectivity. That's what the Platonists gave him. And the Platonists also gave him the conceptual framework that he needed to understand the truths of Christianity. Two essential things along his biographical journey. Um, so... Yeah, So um, so he reads the Platonists, he starts to understand about incorporeal and atemporal nature of God, the goodness of created things, uh, the fact that evil is not a substance, uh, but then he also encounters the pride of the Platonists. And in fact, he says that this was another thing that led him to Christianity. He says that Platonism led him to be puffed up with knowledge, and that prepared him to reject Platonism for its presumption and embrace the truth and humility of Christianity. So whereas, this is kind of paradoxical, but whereas the uh, philosophy of Cicero led him to a kind of pride that made him unable to understand the truths of Scripture because he couldn't understand it as a child, the the philosophy of Plato led him to a kind of uh, being puffed up, a kind of pride that helped him to recognize his own moral deficiencies which then led him to be dissatisfied with Platonism because it couldn't give him the humility that now he recognized he actually needed, which is something that Christianity offered. And you can actually start to see how this could be the case. If you read Cicero and then you read Plato, Plato is constantly directing you toward things that you don't understand, right? It, it's, it's directing you toward, uh, like we talked about, likely stories and the myths and the poems and uh, the uh, grasping at the very edge of what we can actually comprehend, which can make you puffed up if you feel like you've got a lot more knowledge than everybody else, but can also help you recognize your deficiencies. And I think he started to see both of those, that he was being puffed up, but he also knew that he was incredibly deficient, but Platonism itself uh, couldn't give him a way forward. So um, it's just kind of a paradoxical way that uh, Platonism kind of led him to Christianity as well. Um, So uh, here's a a great quote. I think I have it in your um, handout. He said, I was able to discern the difference there is between presumption, which would be the Platonist, and confession, between those who see what the goal is but do not know the way and those who see the way capital W, which leads to that country of blessedness, which we are meant not only to know, but to dwell in. (coughs) So Christianity offered him the way, but Platonism offered him the goal, and it was the correct goal, but not the way. Um, And so, in that sense, it stirred up in him a desire for something that Platonism couldn't actually offer. Um, So, But, here's one caveat, and it says, "...while the Platonists aided his mind in overcoming the errors of Manichaeism and led him to a greater knowledge of God and the nature of evil, he firmly maintains that Platonism was also deficient in much that is essential to Christianity. Quote, "...their pages show nothing of the face of that love, the tears of confession, your sacrifice, an afflicted spirit, a contrite and humbled heart, the salvation of your people, the espoused city, the promise of the Holy Spirit, the chalice of our redemption. None of those things were contained in the writing of the Platonists. So Platonism was not a destination for Augustine, but a signpost along the way. And this is typified in the fact that, you know, at the classic moment of his conversion, he hears the children say, you know, take and read. Does he take up a work of the Platonists? No. He takes up a work of Scripture, and he reads for his soul's salvation. So now what I want to do... um, Goodness gracious! Uh, so what I want to do is just look at a couple examples of how he uses Platonic categories in a very essential way um, to kind of map his theology. Um, so one of the the classic ones um, is the tripartite soul. So uh, this is also just um, lovely to reflect on, and I'm going to try not to nerd out too much on Plato, um, but um, you know how it is. There's some really good stuff in here. So uh, the concept of the tripartite soul, you can see it uh, defined um, in different ways in Phaedrus and in um, Republic, um, primarily. Um, But here's the idea, and I have it in your handout, um, is that you can uh, kind of map the soul according to three primary desires. Um, So you have um, the intellectual part, uh, which desires wisdom, and then you have uh, the appetitive part uh, which desires um, kind of uh, the bodily cravings, and that could be sex or food or comfort um, and then you have um, the uh, the noble part um, which it, um, or the spirited part, the passions uh, which desire um, glory and honor uh, primarily um, and what what a what Plato does, um, and I've mapped this out, um, but what Plato does is uh, essentially um, when the soul is disordered, uh, when those three parts are not um, ordered toward their proper ends, um, you get the major categories of vice. Um, but when the soul is properly ordered and each part of the soul is, um, is uh, pursuing its proper end, uh, you get the cardinal virtues. So, uh, when the appetites are um, in proper order, there's moderation. Right? When um, the passions are properly ordered, um, that is courage. And then when the intellect is properly ordered, that's prudence. And he, uh, he likens um, this to a city in the Republic and then to a chariot in Phaedrus. Um, and he does different things with those and um, I'm not sure how much time I have to get into all this, and I really apologize. But, um, so in, uh, in the Republic, the idea is that the governing class is like the intellect uh, that's ruling the soul, and the passions are like the, the auxiliary forces uh, who, through courage, restrain uh, the lower classes who are always falling after their appetites, and they're the, the money class, and they're the class that just thinks about sex and food and stuff. And so if the intellect alongside the passions can restrain the appetites, you get a well-ordered soul, and justice is born in the soul. And justice is defined as the ordering principle of the ordered soul. Um, and it's, it's brilliant what he's trying to do in the Republic. Um, and, and, so, and then you can kind of extrapolate that to the city. The well-ordered city is the same way. Um, in Phaedrus, he likens the soul to a chariot, where the intellect is the chariot driver, and he's trying to drive the chariot up toward the realm of the gods. Um, The passions are the noble horse that uh, is willing to follow the chariot driver if the chariot driver is wise. But then you have this wild horse, and that's the appetites. And the soul has a battle that's going on within it, where the noble horse and the intellect are trying to help the soul ascend to knowledge and the, uh, the knowledge of the good and the, um, the beholding of the good, but you've got the wild horse, the appetites that's pulling the chariot downward. Um, and so you always have this kind of perpetual battle. Um, these two images of the tripartite soul are picked up in Plotinus, um, and he kind of extrapolates them a little bit more philosophically. This is just a side note. We know that Augustine read Plotinus and a little bit of porphyry. He probably read some Plato. Um, we don't know for sure exactly what dialogues he read, um, but there's a lot of overlap. So I'm, I'm using a lot of Plato's dialogues, and if your mind's thinking, yeah, but he actually read mostly Plotinus, that's not your voice. It's just in my head. Um, <laughs> yes. A lot of this comes from Plotinus as well. You can read the six Enneads, and you get a lot of that. Um, okay, so why am I saying this? Well, This actually defines uh, the structure of the Confessions and the way that Augustine describes his own conversion. Um, So he says that he had a disordered soul, and that the true desire of his soul was to find rest in God, but he did not know how. So he uses Plato's concept of the tripartite soul, and notes that his soul fell into a disorder of three types. Disorder of the appetites, controlled by the passions of his lustful flesh. Intellectual disorder, toward error and vain curiosity. And spirited disorder, or passionate disorder, toward the desire for worldly glory and the fear of ignominy. And then he maps that onto the biblical matrix of the three kinds of sin. The lust of the flesh, concupiscence. The lust of the eyes, which is vain curiosity. And the pride of life, which is worldly ambition. So he maps Plato's tripartite soul onto the three kinds of sin. And then does this brilliant thing with Eve at the tree and how she falls into all three of those sins. And it's, yeah, it's great. Just go read Confessions. Um, um, but so he says that each part of his soul needed to be converted. And actually the story of his conversion is a constant back and forth where his intellect is being trained to get really close to to a saving knowledge of God and a saving faith in God. And the Platonists are really helping him and the catechesis of Ambrose is really helping him. But then he's also being pulled back because, well, he's got all these worldly ambitions. And he's got the flesh, right? If you've read Confessions, you know he talks all the time about his his flesh, the concupiscence that was dragging his soul down so that he could not really attain um, the knowledge and love of God you know, up until his his final conversion. But this is actually the structure of confessions itself. So, uh, books two through four describe the three disorders of his soul, respectively. So, lust in book two, error in book three, pride in book four. Books six through eight chiastically follow his conversion, so it's the opposite direction. So, um, book six describes his conversion from his pride to humility, seven from error to truth, with the help of the Platonists, and then book eight, his lust is turned to love of God. And it's not until book eight, when that final part of his soul is conquered, that he actually is converted. So that's the structure of, his, of the first eight books of Confessions, is the tripartite soul. The middle of that chiasm is book five, and that's where he meets Ambrose and becomes a catechumen. So I think Augustine's doing something really interesting here. The structure is platonic, but the fulcrum of his conversion is the meaning of Ambrose and becoming catechumen in the church. That's the fulcrum on which his conversion swings, aided by Platonism to help him with these three disorders of his soul. But fundamentally, it's the relationship with Ambrose and the entrance into the church upon which everything rises or falls, uh, which is just really fascinating. Um, now, yeah, okay, so, he kind of, um, the way he summarizes what needed to happen in his conversion, uh, he got, he's got all these disorders of the soul, and he says two things needed to happen. His soul needed to be ordered and his soul needed to be elevated. Both of those are Platonic language. The soul needs to be ordered, like we talked about, according to the, to the virtues, toward the love of God. But it also needed to be elevated. And here he's pulling it, um, this idea of divine ascent, which you get in the Republic through education, you get uh, in um, Symposium through the Ladder of Love. Um, but the idea is that Uh, There are various things that can help you ascend to the realm of the good so that you can behold the good, and by beholding the good, you can be transformed into the likeness of the good. That's kind of Plato slash Plotinus' idea. But at the same time, you're always being dragged back down. Um, So, y'all probably read Symposium. Um, It's a really fun drinking party. All these people give speeches uh, about how great love is. Um, There's some debate about, well, like we've talked about, there's debate about... Oh, already, okay. Uh, about what does Plato actually think? You know, who's the voice of Plato? That sort of thing. But I think Plato's actually giving you a multi perspective on what love is through all these different characters. But the, the takeaway is Socrates slash Diotima's speech, where it talks about how, in order to um, love the good, you first have to learn to love lesser things, lower things. First, the the created things. You learn to love an individual, and then you learn to love the universal through the individual. Uh, Then you learn to love the things that beautify the soul, like the virtues. And then from that, you learn to love the thing from which all the virtues come, the good. And there's just kind of this ladder of love that takes you up to knowledge and love of the good. And then that helps you become like the good. Um, Plotinus takes this, and he introduces with that the concept of memory, that you can... Behold the good through the ladder of love or through the analogy of being or through um, education and the dianoetic effects of education. But you might only get a glimpse of the good and then you're pulled back downward to the realm of becoming. What happens? Well, uh, a memory of the good remains within you. and Then you can look within to that memory and that can help you rise back up. And if you've read the Confessions, you realize that memory is one of Augustine's primary modes of finding God. One, Confessions itself is a memory, right? He's reflecting back on his life. But also, Book 10 is this brilliant discussion of memory. And what he's doing is he actually says, I'm trying to find God. And so, he, is he in my memory? First, he looks out on the created order, and there's this beautiful passage, and he looks out into creation and he says, Are you God? And they say, No, but he made us. And, and then he says, Well, how do you tell me about God? And they said through our beauty. Right? This is all pulling off of Plato, right? And he says, okay, that, they're not God. Well, how about I look inward? Where do I find God in here? Now, here's another thing that Plato or that Augustine does, where he goes beyond Plato, is he introduces the idea of the Imago Dei. Now, you can find a kind of proto imago Dei in Plotinus uh, and a little bit in like Timaeus too. Um, the demiurge you know, creates in the likeness of himself because he's good and he's benevolent. Um, but he looks at the Imago Dei, particularly along Trinitarian lines, throughout confessions. Uh, he does all of these brilliant traces of the Trinity, vestiges of the Trinity that you find within the human person. Um, and so what he's doing is he's searching his memory, and he's searching uh, the image of God within him, but he's finding the Trinity, and that leads him to find the Lagos, who's Christ himself, and, you know, we've got to speed up, and you can read the paper. Um, but Christ becomes um, that peace, the Trinity, and then Christ specifically, becomes that peace that he could never get from the Platonists. Um, uh, he talks about Christ as the mediator. So in Plotinus, and I think in a little bit in Aristotle, memory is, uh, as a, is a mediator. Um, a mediator between knowledge and a mediator between man and God. Um, and he introduces Christ as the ultimate mediator because there are limitations even in his own memory. He goes through all these beautiful things about how memory relates to God, and then he says, but there's deficiencies even there. Where do I turn? So you finally get to his his conversion, and when you read uh, the passage that he reads to finally get converted, you might be a little confused. So it says... um, Put off the passions of the flesh and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not make provision for the concupiscences of the flesh and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what saves him. And I think for a lot of readers, they read that and they go, that's what it is? Like, it's not, you know, Romans 8.1 or it's not like some classic evangelistic passage. It's actually put off the concupiscences of the flesh and put on the Lord Jesus Christ. But for him, in his very platonic framework, that's exactly what he needs. Um, He's got a disordered soul that's keeping him from the knowledge and love of God. And he's got, and we talked about this a little bit in the previous session, but he's got competing wills. Two wills. This is Romans 7, right? He's got two wills. He's got a will that wants to know God and love God and believe in God. And he's got a will that's dragging him down. And he has nowhere to turn. The Platonists do not have an answer to a conflicted will. Fundamentally, they can't give him what he needs. He needs a new will. So when he reads, put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then he's saved, this is Christ giving him a new will. This is union with Christ is occurring for Plato here. Or sorry, for Augustine. Um, He's being given something that he could not ever have for himself a new will, a new will in Christ. Um, and so that's how he kind of transforms his Platonism into a decidedly Christian kind of vision of uh, soteriology. Now, you know, we could go on forever. I put on in your uh, handout um, a list of names of God uh, that he pulls from Plato and Plotinus. If you're just curious how he's a, his doctrine of God's affected by Neoplatonism. You could look at that. Um, You can explore memory. You can explore time. Uh, There's lots of different avenues that you can explore to see how he's influenced. But I thought the soteriology-anthropology piece might be interesting to talk about today. Um, But that's it. If you enjoy this free audio from the Davenant Institute, please like, subscribe and share. We invite you also to join our email list if you want to hear about upcoming events, new content or course offerings at Davenant Hall. Links are in the description.